Friends, good morning. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Welcome to worship on this very special day in the life of the church, the day of Pentecost, the day we celebrate and mark uh, the gift of God's Holy Spirit to God's people, a spirit that is with us even now, a spirit that leads us and moves us in becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Uh, before I uh, ask you to check in, I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, I want you to greet each other. If you're not keen on shaking hands, just kind of fold your hands, give a head nod. Otherwise, welcome to worship. I know, I've got it all, right? I'd like to welcome all the first-time visitors with us, especially today in worship, whether you're live streaming or here in the sanctuary. We'd be encouraged if you let us know if you're a first-time visitor. Uh, there's a little QR code on page 8 in the digital copy of your bulletin or the hard copy of your bulletin. Uh, take a picture of that and then follow the prompts through. Uh, we will send you an email and welcome you to uh, our life of worship uh, and then answer any questions you might have in the coming uh, days. For those who are regular, uh, you'll see this on your screen if you're worshiping remotely. It's on page 12 in the bulletin, another QR code for you uh, to check in. Uh, you'll see on pages uh, 13 and 14 a few announcements of what's happening in the life of the church. We're super excited that vac Vacation Bible School starts tomorrow. We have well over 100 students, 100 children participating uh, in VBS with another 50 or so volunteers. It's going to be an electric week. Uh, here at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, be in prayer for those students, those children, and also uh, all of the volunteer leaders who will be leading uh, VBS. Uh, if you look on page 13, uh, we are really excited to welcome uh, our uh, artists and residents, rather, challenge the stats for their Juneteenth Orchestra performance uh, right here, 8 p.m. in the sanctuary, a free concert. Many of you are aware of our partnership uh, with Challenge the Stats, a wonderful uh, concert is being planned. Again, it's totally free, June the 18th, 8 p.m. here uh, in the sanctuary. Backpacks are needed for our uh, community ministries friends. Uh, as uh, school is out, you may or may not have gently used backpacks. You may want to purchase some new ones. Uh, we uh, are always in need of uh, packs and bags where folks can carry their stuff around the city as they move about. So you can drop them off at the security desk. You could also email Kate Culver for more uh, information. 
I'm delighted to announce uh, a birth in the life of our church. Louise Latham Clay Reese was born to Spencer and Julia Bowen Reese. Julia Bowen Newsom is a daughter of this church. Uh, they're doing well, be in prayer for Louise in these days. We give thanks to God for very proud grandparents, uh, Eddie and Julia Newsom. Eddie hasn't stopped smiling uh, since coming in today. And it, we're so glad to see uh, proud aunt and uncle Sophie and Alec McCall here as well. Congratulations. Please tell uh, Spencer and Julia Bowen that we said congratulations and we're praying for them uh, in this time. Immediately following our worship uh, together, we will uh, be uh, having a fellowship time, our normal fellowship time, but we also will take an opportunity to say goodbye and to thank you to our director of global mission, Lee Bonner, who is here in worship today. I saw her. Oh, there you are. Thank you, Lee. Um, uh, through some discernment, you may have seen this in an email, some discernment through session over a period of time, uh, we have discerned uh, to restructure how we accomplish our global mission and our ministry with our global partners that will no longer require the position of director of global mission. And so we're grateful for Lee's service for four years. We're grateful for her faithfulness and fidelity as a pastor and as a leader in the midst of uh, our congregation and our community. She will be over there with her spouse, Adam, uh, to say goodbye uh, again during the fellowship hour. But I think right now in worship, I'd like to publicly thank her for her service to First Press. Thank you, Lee. Friends, let us prepare our hearts for the worship of God. call to worship is responsive. It's printed in your order for service. We are Easter people. We have witnessed the resurrection of our Lord. We are now called to be people of Pentecost. We are called to boldly share the good news of God's love. Open your hearts, O people, to God's great power and love. We open our hearts to hear God's word for us and to joyfully proclaim Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Friends, let us worship our God.
Amen. One of the ways when we feel the spirit that we pray is in a prayer of confession. And we gather together for worship every Sunday, remembering that we are in need of God's grace and forgiveness. So let us join our voices together, praying our prayer of confession. Lord God, you know us. You know that we can be like the disciples after the crucifixion and even the resurrection. We would rather hide and mutter and weep than proclaim the power of your love. The world is a difficult, dangerous, and deadly place. We fear so much. We want people to like us, and so we hold back on our proclamation of our faith. We don't want to offend anyone, but your love and presence are not offensive. They are empowering and healing. Bring your holy fire upon us this day to ignite a spark of joy in our hearts and our voices. Bring the power of your rushing wind through our spirits that we may be turned in new directions for service and witness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God's healing love is offered to you even when you fear or are unsure of your faith. Know that God is with you. Be not afraid and believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Alleluia. Amen. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 8, 14, 17. Please, please turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 148 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then ears, ears of God, and join ears with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Thank you, Hagen. Our second text uh, for this Pentecost Sunday uh, is also one that's set before us from the lectionary, a text that is traditionally read on this day from the book of Acts, the second chapter, verses 1 through 21, page 111 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, that is, the disciples. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, all in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's wonderful to have uh, so many children with us here this morning. We do have an opportunity for godly play. Uh, Miss Katie or Miss Pastor Jamie is there to greet you. Any children that would like to participate in Godly Play can meet Pastor Jamie and others. 
uh, right here by this front door. And hopefully we'll see you all tomorrow at VBS. Friends, with that, let us, let us pray. Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us so that we may understand and feel and know that your spirit is in our midst, that that spirit is moving us and shaping us and liberating us to be faithful in these days, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Nazi and uh, convicted war criminal Hermann Goering was the Third Reich's number two man during the devastating reign of Adolf Hitler. And in his diary, uh, Goering wrote about how uh, the general population could be easily manipulated. He often wrote about how the general population could be controlled through the currency of fear. The general population could be easily controlled through the currency of fear. This is what he wrote. He said, the people don't actually want war, but they can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. He said, that is actually quite easy. All you must do is tell them that they are in danger and they should be afraid. All you have to do is tell them that they're being attacked and denounce the, the pacifists for lack of patriotism and for exposing the country to this particular danger. He concluded by saying, it works the same way in every country. It works the same way in every nation across time. George Gerbner was a Hungarian immigrant turned U.S. citizen who enlisted in the army in 1943, motivated to participate in the Allied effort to support that effort against Goering and Hitler and the Nazi project. Gerbner actually won the Bronze Star for his service behind enemy lines, and he was honorably retired at the end of the war as a first lieutenant. Following his uh, service, uh, he pursued a career in journalism and uh, communications from an academic perspective, which eventually led him to the deanship of the Annenberg School for Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. One of Gerbner's greatest contributions to the field, and one of his greatest contributions to sociology, I think, uh, is his work around how mass media and how mass messaging directly impacts the sense of fear in someone, whether they are receiving it individually or collectively as a group. Whether we were talking about Goering or Goebbels' Nazi propaganda, or even talking about uh, mass messaging today through cable news networks or social media or, or, or individually curated news feeds. Gerbner argued that, that various forms of media perpetuate a narrative that the world is on fire and it's about to burn. The world is on the brink of destruction. 
that the world is always on the threshold of apocalypse. So you should be very, very afraid. In 1968, Gerbner launched something he called the Cultural Indicator Project. It's still something that exists today. He created it to identify trends in television programming and how these trends affected viewers' perspective of reality. And from that project, he coined the phrase mean world syndrome. Mean world syndrome. To describe the fact that people who watch large amounts of television, remember this is the late 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s. So we're really only talking about television. But those who watch large amounts of television are more likely to perceive the world as a dangerous and frightening place. In 1981, Gerbner was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on Capitol Hill. And he articulated his theory for the public record in a way I think the public could understand. He said the most general and prevalent association with television viewing is a heightened sense of living in a mean world of violence and danger. He said fearful people are more dependent, more easily manipulated and controlled, more susceptible to deceptively simple, strong, tough measures and hardline postures. They may accept and even welcome repression if it promises to relieve their insecurities. That, he says, is the deeper problem of violence-laden television. And maybe we could say in our contemporary space, that is the deeper problem of violence-laden mass media. Gerber's problem, I'm convinced, is not one of the past. It remains with us today. I mean, just think about it this way. Follow this train of thought. It took 75 years, 75 years before there were 50 million telephone users. 75 years. It took 38 years for 50 million people to have a radio. And it took 13 years for that same number to have a television. For the internet to hit that threshold, to hit that mark of 50 million users, it only took four years. To reach the 50 million user threshold, rather, it took Facebook two years, Instagram 19 months, YouTube 10 months, and Twitter nine short months. So follow this logic. If, if, if you combine the elixir of acceleration and availability and consumption of mass media, if you mix that elixir with the tonic of the adage, if it bleeds, it leads, or mix it with the adage, if it scares, let it air, and then add Gerbner's assessment that fearful people are more dependent and easily controlled than what is created is a cocktail that can only be described as a culture of fear. A culture of fear. Ours may be an age of anxiety, but only because 
We live in a culture of fear, and people today are drunk on fear. Drunk on fear. Fear drives so much of our personal and collective decision makings. As much as it drives how we understand the world and how we understand our place in it, fear often dictates, consciously or subconsciously, who we want to call friend and who we want to call enemy. And politicians of all stripes and corporations of of all sizes and preachers and pundits of of all persuasions and the vast number of media outlets, all proclaiming unequivocal objective neutrality when reporting the news, often use fear in one form or another to direct people's attention or to direct their will or to direct their agency or to direct their wealth or to direct their power or to direct their voice or to direct their vote towards something that they may not even care about, that they may not even believe in. Now, admittedly, on this Pentecost Sunday, a day of celebration, this is quite a downer from the preacher. It's a very cynical perhaps even Orwellian view of what we're up against in the 21st century West. In my defense, however, in case any of you forgot or didn't know, I'm a Presbyterian. And since becoming a Presbyterian at age 19, I've been compelled by Calvin's 16th century notion of total depravity. That by nature, human beings are corrupt and corruptible, that we are fallen and sinful. I don't think I need to defend Calvin on this point. Just look at Ukraine and Uvalde, or look at Buffalo, or all the cover-ups in churches across this nation who have hidden abuse year after year after year. Or... An easier thing is just look in the mirror. Look at all the things that we've done or what we've left undone, what we're truly capable of. The point I'm trying to make here is that human depravity throughout the ages has leveraged and ginned up fear to drive outcomes and results. To drive outcomes and results. Now, of course, I think it's important that we say something about fear as a God-given emotion that has, without argument, kept us alive as a species, right? Our family was up in Black Mountain, North Carolina, late in the week, and, and, and we saw for the very first time, we knew they existed up in the mountains, but we saw for the very first time a black bear in our neighborhood, just walking around near an Amazon truck, We had that image of the bear in mind as we uh, went out for our hike the very next day. We weren't deterred, even as we arrived at the trailhead, a trail that we didn't typically, uh, don't typically hike rather, with a big warning sign that says, beware of bears. We thought about our friend again, but we pressed on in the hike. About a half mile up a wickedly steep incline, we actually found on the trail, 
okay, on the trail, fresh bear droppings. And I'm sorry to be so gross in church, but there was a lot of it. And like I said, it was fresh. And just beyond that part of the trail was a formation of rocks. Now, I'm no expert, but I said to Katie, that's probably where that bear lives. And so we turned around and we walked back down the mountain toward our car. Friends, you know this to be true. There are fears that keep us alive. There are fears that help us make good decisions. These are God-planted emotions that are necessary for human survival, and I would argue that are necessary for the common good. But I'm not talking this morning about that kind of innate, God-given fear. I'm talking about the fear that's born of manipulation. I'm talking about the fear that is born for the desire to control or to immobilize. I'm talking about the fear that's manufactured. It's the fear that Gerbner warned us about. It's the kind of fear not meant for our surviving or our thriving, the kind that helps us avoid bears on a mountain hike, but the kind of fear that's meant to control us and to immobilize us. Now, our ancient forebears, those in the classical world, uh, wrote a lot about fear. Conversations about fear are not a new phenomenon. And one of the things that you discover as you look at some of these ancient texts about fear is the ways in which these writers place in juxtaposition fear and freedom. Fear and freedom. Aristotle put it simply, he said, the one who has overcome fear will truly be free. And he's not the only one that puts these two in conversation. In other words, fear can be a type of bondage. Fear can be a type of captivity. And we see this same line of thinking in the writings of the Apostle Paul, specifically in this passage that Hagen read for us, rather, from Romans chapter 8. Now, what you need to know about Romans is that, that Paul did not launch the churches in Rome. You know, there's, there, there's many churches that Paul is, is credited with starting on his missionary journeys, but, but Rome, uh, the Roman churches emerged outside of Paul's mission and ministry. And so he's writing in the year 57, 58, 59 AD, and he's trying to accomplish two things. First, because he's never been to Rome. Even though he's a Roman citizen, he's never been to Rome. He wants to make the case that he does have some measure of authority to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to let them know that he too is an apostle. And second, what he's trying to do is lay out with great clarity and skill, and I think he does this, what he's trying to articulate is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the good news of God. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world is being put to rights. And there's a new way of being human. And he frames the gospel in beautiful, poetic, deeply theological ways. If, if you have any question about what the gospel is all about, I encourage you tonight, read through Romans. It won't take you that long. 16 short chapters to read through and to, to get some clarity on what the gospel is, is all about. Now, specifically, in Romans 8, verse 15, Paul, I'm not saying that he 
is plagiarizing Aristotle, but he sounds a lot like the ancients. He sounds a lot like Aristotle when he writes this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. Spirit of adoption. In the first part of this sentence, Paul puts fear and freedom in juxtaposition. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, the day we mark the coming of the Advocate, the day we mark the coming of the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us that the very Spirit of God, the Spirit that God gives us, is not one that invites us to fall back into fear. Those are his words verbatim. God doesn't give us a spirit to fall back into fear. The phrase fall back is interesting. It's pretty straightforward. It means what it means in the Greek is what it means in English. To return to something. To go back to something. Paul had some inkling that that they were living at some point in a state of fear. We don't know what that state consisted of. We don't know the culture of fear that we, that, that they rather were experiencing. We can make some uh, educated guesses. Perhaps they feared Rome's power and the way they lorded that power over the face of the earth. Or perhaps they feared being a minority of a minority, Right? Being a Christian, which was a sect of Judaism, Judaism being a minority of this Gentile world. Or perhaps they feared persecution or, or, or exclusion because of their faith. The persecution of Christians wasn't happening per se at this time, but Nero was just coming to power. And he's going to blame the Christians in, in just a few short years from Paul's writing for the great fire of Rome and begin the systemic persecution of Christians, maybe they started to hear rumblings of that. Or perhaps their fear was something more uh, theological or emotional or psychological. Perhaps they feared they could never live up to the holiness or the righteousness of God. That they would never be acceptable in God's sight. Paul argues that, that what God has given us in the Holy Spirit does not lead us back to a mindset of fear, but rather to a mindset of freedom. And this is a freedom that's guaranteed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul reminds us, we are children of God. And when you are a child of God and you're an heir to Christ's promises, you have everything you need to face the day. You have everything you need to face the season of life you know yourself to be in. We no longer fear death because Christ has conquered the grave. We no longer fear living. How many of us fear living life to the full? We no longer have to fear living because Christ is alive and he lives in you and in me in the form of the Holy Spirit. So much of the scripture, I was thinking about this week in preparation, so much of the scripture as it talks about and frames across the whole of the Bible, as it talks about and frames God's engagement with the human race and with the world, so much of it can be understood through the lens of liberation from fear. 
And remember what, what, what God said to Moses or to the people wandering in the desert or to, to Joshua or to Isaiah or to Mary or what Jesus said to the disciples. Do not be afraid over and over and over again. Do not be afraid. The psalmist, if there's a broken record in the psalms, it's about not being afraid. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I sought the Lord and God answered me and delivered me from my fears. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, O God. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. That's just a sampling from the Psalms. In the New Testament, we hear Jesus time and time again saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be anxious. Do not be Afraid, for I am with you now, even to the end of the age. In the epistles, Hebrews 13, 6, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. First Peter 5, cast your fear upon God because God cares for you. And 1 John 4, there is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. Friends, I'll close with this encouragement. On this Pentecost Sunday, we we declare that the Holy Spirit is in our midst. It's not some dream. It's not some hope, some deferred hope. It's a reality. The very Spirit of God is, is, is in our midst. And this Spirit's work is liberating us from fear. It is liberating us from that, those fears that immobilize us and dictate our lives and manipulate us, that, that the Spirit of God is working to, to loosen the chains within this culture of fear. But Shana is a Canadian philosopher from, from Zimbabwe, and he said, fear, I love this, fear is a false prophet. Fear is a false prophet. How have you in your life, in this season of your life, given yourself over to the false prophet of fear? In these days, what decisions are you making that are, that are born not of a spirit of freedom, but a spirit of fear? A spirit of fear that, that blinds us from remembering that we have been adopted into the family of God. What voices in your life do you just need to either turn down or turn off? who are constantly telling you, you ought to be afraid. And what would it mean for you to live life liberated by the Holy Spirit from a life of fear in favor of a life of true freedom? For you did not receive a spirit of oppression, says Paul, to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as children of God which makes us free. And that's exactly what we are. Amen. God calls us to give in freedom of ourselves, even as God has given us in freedom. We give in many different ways in the life of the church, through QR codes, through old-fashioned checks, 
through cash in the offering boxes that are outside the sanctuary. We give thanks to God for the generosity of the saints of this congregation in all its forms. Let us continue to give thanks for all that God has given us and allowed us to steward. Lord, we give you thanks for every good gift that you give us and for the privilege of stewarding the gifts that you've put us in charge of. May we continue to be faithful in every way so that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
The gift of the Spirit is a gift of liberation, liberating us from the fear, the, the culture of fear that wraps itself around us, that manipulates us, that, that immobilizes us, that, that controls us. God had something totally different in mind where we can claim our agency that God has given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to choose a life of love and a life of freedom, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. And may this same Spirit that lived in Christ live in you. And may his peace, a peace which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds now and forevermore. Amen.